Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. The quarterback coach that, that Mike had brought in was Walt Harris, who I actually had met on my recruiting trip to Michigan State. He was a linebacker's coach up there. And so this was the first time he'd ever been on the offensive side of the ball. And so it was kind of a learning curve for him and for us also on how to, how to handle a guy with a linebacker mentality coaching quarterback. So it was, it was a very intense spring. Um, he was looking for guys to step up and be leaders. You know, we were all trying to figure out obviously how to do that in his eyes and, I remember at a particular incident, um, we were practicing a scramble drill. So, and then to slide, you know, to kind of get that we were doing the slides, but then he says, well, look, if the two linebackers are coming or two defenders are coming you want to split them. And we all kind of looked at each other like, you know, I'm going to go down or I'm going to go out of, I'm not going to split two linebackers. That's not, you know, the other quarterbacks from the prior regime probably looked at it like that and, but I wasn't planning on doing that. And we actually, what was really interesting was Sam Weiss, you know, the old Cincinnati coach was there watching practice because he was a you know friend of Mike White's and had been on staff with him out with the 49ers. And he actually took Walt aside after the practice and said, hey, you know, there's a lot of guys that can play with a maybe a sprained shoulder or a sore shoulder, but the quarterback's not one of them. So you might want to rethink that philosophy. Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes released each week will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with episode one. This is episode 10, A Hell of an Engineer. On November 4, 1980, millions of Americans went to the voting booths and elected Ronald Reagan as the 40th President of the United States in a landslide. The Republican victory, along with the party's gains in both the House and Senate, were seen as a red wave ushering in a new era of politics in this country. But the dominance of college football's Crimson Tide 
was on shaky ground. After suffering its first loss in 29 games, previously top-ranked Alabama dropped out of the top five and its pursuit for a third straight national title was in jeopardy. While the American people were casting ballots, AP voters were busy submitting theirs to select a new number one. The entire top 10 was in shambles after a catastrophic Saturday that saw numbers one, two, six, and 10 all fall from the ranks of the unbeaten. A shuffling within the top five was nothing new in 1980, but the top spot had belonged to Alabama since week two. Now, with just four games left and bowl bids about to be handed out, the real battle for number one began, and the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame took the pole position. For the first time since 1974, college football's most famous team was awarded the number one ranking during the regular season. The University of Georgia was the only other major college football team with a perfect record and was slotted at number two. Florida State, Pittsburgh, and Oklahoma rounded out the top five, with defending champion Alabama tumbling down to number eight. The Crimson Tide and the Irish were on the cusp of the season's most anticipated collision, but that game was still two weeks away in Birmingham. Excitement and demand was so high for the game that a Notre Dame alumnus filed a lawsuit in a Jefferson County courthouse against a hotel over a canceled reservation that he made for the big weekend. But as had been proven time and time again, looking ahead during the 1980 college football season was to be done at your own peril. As the season entered its 10th week, the state of Georgia was at the center of the college football universe. The sport's new number one, Notre Dame, was in Atlanta to face the struggling Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, while second-ranked Georgia, fresh off a bruising win over George Rogers in South Carolina, limped into a rivalry contest against the surprising Florida Gators in Jacksonville. But it was a California kid playing quarterback in the land of Lincoln that was authoring the most unbelievable story of the 1980 season and tearing apart the country's oldest conference in the process. By 1980, the glory days for the University of Illinois football program were well in its past. Since finishing unbeaten in 1951, the program had experienced just one bowl victory and eight winning seasons in the three decades that followed. In the early 20th century, the Fighting Illini was a team of some renown. It claimed four national titles from 1914 to 1927 and featured one of the greatest players in the game's history, the galloping ghost, Red Grange. In 1895, Illinois was among the charter members of the Western Conference, a group of five Midwest schools that would become the Big Ten, and whose founding predated the creation of the NCAA itself by 10 years. As the decades of disappointment piled up for Illinois, coaches had come and gone from Champaign, but none could recapture the magic of those early Illini teams. Most recently, Michigan's former defensive coordinator, Gary Moeller, had taken the job in 1977. He won just six games in three years, and was fired after the 1979 campaign, along with the school's athletics director. Now, the task of finding the right man to lead the program belonged to Neil Stoner, a graduate of Cal State Fullerton and Illinois' new AD. In a meeting with the team's players, Stoner promised them that he'd hire a coach to bring an exciting brand of passing offense to Champaign. To fill the position, he looked back towards his West Coast roots, far from the constraints of the conservative Big Ten and its stodgy reputation for three yards in a cloud of dust. It was there, working as an assistant to Bill Walsh for the San Francisco 49ers, that he found Mike White, a man with a reputation as a quarterback guru. White had played for the University of California and coached his alma mater as well as at Stanford before serving as an NFL offensive line coach. Along the way, he'd helped to develop quarterbacks like Craig Morton, Jim Plunkett, and Steve Bartkowski, and even led the Golden Bears to a conference crown in 1975 when he was named National Coach of the Year. But when White left the college ranks after the 1977 season, he did so under a cloud of controversy, 
when it was alleged that his players weren't attending classes. But at Illinois, he warned his players that they would have to be excellent students. During his first press conference, he said proudly, Our system is so complex that no player at Illinois can now be considered a veteran. He followed that up by saying that his top priority was finding an outstanding high school or junior college quarterback that can handle his system. He wasted little time getting to work. Like Stoner, White moved into the Illinois Athletics dormitories while his family looked for a home in Champaign. Illinois had a returning quarterback on the roster, but he didn't seem to be a good fit for the style of offense that White promised. Once again, the answer to Illinois' problems was to be found in California, but that solution came at a cost and resulted in one of the most remarkable and forgotten stories in college football history. Dave Wilson loved playing football, but the six-foot-three right-handed quarterback wasn't exactly feeling the love from Division I programs as he wrapped up his senior season at Catella High School in Anaheim. When you say not a whole lot of interest, there was, um, uh, I guess, zero would qualify for that because there was zero interest for me coming out of high school. We weren't a very good team. And we threw the ball a little bit, but I mean, obviously nothing like in today's world. And even back then, I mean, it was, I think I threw for maybe 1,200 yards my senior year, but I was um, picked to play in an Orange County All-Star game. So there must have been something there that somebody saw, whoever was, you know, the head coach at that time for the for the County All-Star team. So I played in that, played really well, was named the MVP. And I was fortunate enough to be in the proximity of Fullerton Junior College, which you know, had a head coach, which uh, Hal Sherbeck is kind of like, um, I guess, the Bear Bryant of junior college coaches. And his staff had been in place for 20-plus years and just um, won a couple national championships. So I was very fortunate to get to go there and got really well coached at that point. Wilson entered the 1977 season as the backup quarterback at Tiny Fullerton Junior College. He was called into action late in the second quarter of his very first game but it didn't result in the kind of big break that he was expecting. There was a guy that had been there for a year, and um, so they went ahead and started him in that first game. He was kind of ineffective in the first half, and and um, and I, like you said, I came in towards the end of the half, threw a couple passes, completed one, and then as, as one, I kind of scrambled out and got knocked down after I threw it away, and, and it was pretty much the end of the half, so I went into halftime, and I mean, I knew my wrist hurt, and it was my throwing hand. And so came out the second half, and you know, I was excited to play, and it gets going, and I couldn't even grip the football and couldn't throw it. And it was just when I told the head coach, he's looking at me like, what? Because you know, I hadn't said anything about the wrist. Under normal circumstances, those three plays in the first game were likely to be forgotten by everybody but Wilson himself. Instead, they launched his career on a trajectory that would eventually land him in the middle of a bitter and brutal fight for his eligibility. Unable to return to the field during his freshman season, Wilson and his coach came up with a plan. That first game when I broke my wrist was um, it was actually before school had started, so the semester hadn't started yet. So when I did that and got the cast, and obviously was going to be out for the year, um, how Coach Sherbeck came to me and said, look, drop down to part-time student and Basically, you know, you stay enrolled, but this year won't count as anything. I mean, we encountered it wouldn't count as a red shirt, you know, cause, because the school year hadn't started. It wouldn't count as anything. So start, drop down a part-time student, start next year, play two years, and then move on to wherever you're going to go and, and still have, you know, two, three to play two is what we thought we would have at that point, a red shirt year plus two years if I needed them. Um, so that's what we did. And, um, 
as you know, it didn't work out that way. In 1978, Wilson returned to full-time status and once again found himself in the backup quarterback role at Fullerton. After five games, he took over first-string duties and threw for nearly 1,000 yards and eight touchdowns in only a half season. Now with some game experience, Wilson flourished as the full-time starter in 1979. He piled up passing yards and claimed All-American status while drawing attention from some major programs like USC and Michigan State. Then, a late-season knee injury again made the recruiters go quiet. There was some interest. You know, I was pretty much online to be um, All-American that year. We were having a great season, and I was playing well. And So then when I broke my ankle um, in that second-to-last game, I think it was, um, it, it really kind of died down. I, I took a couple of recruiting shots. Like, again, I was on crutches and I think a full cast. Um, I went to Michigan State when Daryl Rogers was there. Um, and then went to up to San Jose State with Jack Elway. Um, I really liked Michigan State, and then he left and went down to I, I think Arizona State. And so then that kind of threw that one out. So really, I only had San Jose State was my only other option, and I was planning on going there until uh, my coach Serbeck came up and said, "Look, save one of your trips," which wasn't a big deal because there wasn't any other trips to take because I have a you know, some inside scoop that a guy may be getting a job that wants to talk to you. So sure enough, Mike White got the job in the next week or so, and I took a trip back there. Coach Sherbeck's inside scoop proved to be prophetic, as Mike White would be named the head coach at Illinois in the coming weeks. White had found the Midwest recruiting trail to be unforgiving. He and his assistants were often laughed at by high school coaches. Such was the poor reputation of Illinois football at the time. But Wilson was just the kind of quarterback that the young head coach was looking for and the kind he couldn't find in the local high schools. And for Wilson, White's refreshing and uncommon approach to the college game was too good to pass up. It was definitely, it was Mike White. That, that's what sold me, though. I remember sitting at a basketball game. That part was exciting, but I was still in my cast and talking with Coach White, and he was saying, you know, Big Ten won't know what hit him because, you know, they, they, they have Purdue maybe that throws a little bit and maybe a couple other teams, but, you know, it was basically... Uh, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, which is kind of what, you know, Gary Muller was trying to, to do there and couldn't do it with uh, with any type of success. So it was just an exciting as a quarterback to hear that, that, you know, we're going to come in and we're going to throw the ball and then, you know, we're just going to go out and have fun. And so that definitely sold me. And so that was a, an easy decision at that point. With his quarterback signed for the 1980 season, it was time for the real work to begin to turn around the Illini program. Coach White introduced more West Coast flavor by bringing in two assistants from Arizona State and two more from Oregon. Wilson was part of a crowded quarterback's room that included another junior college transfer and future Super Bowl starter, Tony Eason. As Wilson attended classes and battled Eason for the right to lead White's offense, quarterback's coach Walt Harris alerted him of a brewing issue over his transfer credits. Well, the first inklings we got of it was around the end of that spring. I seem to remember that the coach quarterback coach Walt Harris coming up to me and saying, you know, there's, there's something going on with your transcripts. There's, there might be an issue, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm going, well, what? And so then later on, went in and talked with Neil Stoner, the AD, and, and he says, you know, look, the Big Ten saying now that that first year that you got hurt counts as a year. And so they're saying because you're not progressing, you didn't progress towards your degree, you have to use this upcoming year as your redshirt year. Catch up to your degree progression 
and then you're able to play that final year. And so obviously looking at the quarterback room and seeing Tony Eason there, who's a future first rounder, if I do that, he starts and I'm probably not going to get to play. So um, it was advised to me to get in touch with a local lawyer named Bob Aller. Um, and so then that was how my first inkling of it came about. This is where Wilson's story gets wild. To this point, his recruitment and time spent at a California junior college may have seemed like an unnecessary prologue, but I assure you, it's essential to understanding the soap opera-like drama that I'm about to recount. When Wilson transferred to Illinois, the NCAA ruled that he had played three seasons for Fullerton Junior College, counting those three plays in 1977 as a full season. It further announced that his remaining eligibility allowed for just one year of postseason competition, with no comment on the amount of regular varsity competition he could play. Illinois appealed this decision and was turned down. Then, the school went to the Big Ten's eligibility committee for a ruling, and it agreed that Wilson had just one year of eligibility remaining, and that he could play during the 1980 season. At issue was something called the NCAA Hardship Rule. In 1980, that rule stated that a transfer who experienced an injury during his first year could still play two seasons at a Division II or III school. If that same player were to transfer to a Division I school, like Illinois, he would only maintain one season of eligibility. That seems pretty clear, right? Wilson was hurt during his first year at a junior college, and then transferred to a Division I school. He only gets one year. But that rule applied to every sport but football. In football, that decision is left up to the conference. That's why Illinois was appealing directly to the Big Ten. It was the ultimate decider of Wilson's fate. So when the Big Ten's eligibility committee only granted one year for Wilson, Illini Athletics Director Neil Stoner decided to go to the absolute ruling authority in the conference, the faculty representatives, and ask them to overrule the eligibility committee's decision and grant Wilson an extra year of eligibility. The attempt backfired. The faculty rep stated that the committee was correct in granting Wilson only one year, but was incorrect in stating that that year could be 1980. In their opinion... Wilson should have to sit out the 1980 season and earn enough credits to become eligible to play as a senior in 1981. Wilson's attorney, Bob Aller, had a brilliant legal strategy. Remember how Neil Stoner had made an appeal of Wilson's eligibility to the Big Ten's faculty representatives and it was their ruling that the quarterback would have to sit out the entire 1980 season? Well, Aller argued that by appealing to get Wilson an extra year without his client's permission, he had infringed upon Wilson's constitutional rights. In August of 1980, just two weeks before the Illini's first game, Aller filed suit in Champaign County Circuit Court against the NCAA, the Big Ten, and the University of Illinois. The school was lumped in as a defendant despite its support of Wilson due to conference standards that obligated it to participate. In addition to the facts of the case as I have laid out, there was another layer to the Big Ten's resistance to allowing Wilson to play. In Episode 3, I covered the widespread academic scandals that plagued the West Coast schools. Many of those violations, including the ones that had resulted in severe penalties for USC and half of the Pac-10 conference in 1980, centered around ineligible athletes that were given credit for phony classes at California junior colleges. The Big Ten was not about to see its own reputation tarnished in a similar fashion. It was surely bristling at the appearance of an AD and head coach from California signing junior college transfers to one of its flagship institutions. 
The Big Ten was also angered at the University of Illinois for daring to allow Wilson to remain enrolled and drag the venerable old conference through a legal battle. According to Stoner, he told Wilson that the school could not be party to the lawsuit and that the quarterback would be on his own if he fought the conference's ruling. But the Big Ten did not believe that. It considered the university's actions no less than treason. And so, with the Big Ten dug in on one side, a student-athlete on the other, and Illinois somewhere in the middle, the future of Dave Wilson was to be decided in a courtroom. The case was not likely to be heard until after the season was completed, and so Aller asked for an injunction that would allow Wilson to play while he waited for his day in court. On September 2nd, just two days before the season opener, Judge Harry Clem, a University of Illinois alumnus, granted that injunction. In his decision, Clem said that Wilson would suffer irreparable harm if not allowed to play, and that the Big Ten was likely to lose the case when it was argued. The ruling meant that Wilson could play in his team's first game against Northwestern that Saturday, and Coach White scrambled to get him ready for his debut against the lowly Wildcats. Wilson didn't have his best outing. He completed just 5 of 18 passes, but the Illini got the victory 35-9, and Wilson could look forward to growing in his coach's system now that his legal battles were behind him. Or so he thought. Just five days later, Wilson was back in court. This time, the Big Ten was asking that the injunction be dissolved, and the conference's lawyers had what they believed was a smoking gun. When Illinois initially filed a petition for Wilson's hardship waiver to allow him to play in 1980, it entered his high school GPA as 2.67. Then, although it wasn't required, the school also attached the high school transcripts for Dave Wilson. As the Big Ten's legal team was looking for ways to end the injunction, it went back to this initial petition and found an inconsistency. The transcript of Dave Wilson from Catella High School that was submitted was for David B. Wilson, a wide receiver at Fullerton Junior College, not David C. Wilson, the quarterback in question. When the error was discovered, it took three weeks for the correct transcript to be submitted to the Big Ten. This clerical error, and the extended time taken to correct it, was to the Big Ten evidence of chicanery by the Illinois Athletics Department. Although David B.'s GPA was slightly higher than David C.'s, the quarterback's transcript contained more college preparatory courses, and so was considered a more favorable transcript. But that didn't matter. Armed with this evidence, the Big Ten was prepared to stop Wilson's season after just one game. On the day before Illinois was to play Michigan State, Bob Aller was back in court to represent Wilson. Judge Clem denied the Big Ten's request to hear new evidence and throw out his injunction, but he did agree to a rescheduled hearing on the following Wednesday to consider the quarterback's future. Wilson could still play football, and the next day, the Fighting Illini hosted Michigan State. Wilson completed 14 of 22 passes for 165 yards, as Illinois moved to 2-0 on the young season, thanks to a last-second field goal by another junior college transfer. After the game, Wilson told reporters that he felt like he was spending more time in court than on the football field. Four days later, he was back in front of a judge again. This time, Judge Clem reluctantly reversed his earlier injunction, citing the Big Ten's argument about the incorrect transcript as having significantly changed the circumstances surrounding the case. The decision meant that Wilson would not be able to play for Illinois in its next game, or likely ever again. As attorney Bob Aller left the courtroom that day, he knew the only chance he had to save his client's season was a legal Hail Mary. He launched it the next day by asking for an emergency hearing by a three-person appellate panel on Friday afternoon just one day before Illinois was to play against Missouri in Columbia. In what Aller referred to as legal as well as sports history, the panel voted 2-1 to one to reinstate Wilson's eligibility. I can't even practice with the team, so they're getting the other guys ready to play. 
I'm sitting out there uh, at practice just watching. I think it, was, it must have been Tuesday or Wednesday. And Bob comes pulling onto the field. In a, I want to say it wasn't a limo, but it was like a black town car or something. And, and it was kind of almost, almost like a mafia scene because it's got tinted windows. He rolls his windows down and he calls Mike White over there. And, and uh, he tells us that, um, you know, I just got a call from anonymous call from the state court of appeals. I believe it was that says, if you can get the paperwork in, in time in the next two days or something, we'll hear your case on Friday, which I think is just unprecedented that they can even see a case or, you know, review a case in that time amount of time. So, they went down or got it in, and the, the team flew off to my uh, to Missouri on Friday morning. And I'm sitting there watching the news at like 6:30, and I came across that you know that they had ruled in my favor, I think four to three. And so I ran to the airport and got on a small plane and flew to Missouri that night. When Coach White was asked by reporters about whether Wilson would start on Saturday after news of his availability was confirmed, he slammed his motel door on them in frustration. Throughout the first three weeks of the season, White and Wilson had been dealing with the quarterback's yo-yoing eligibility, and the irritation was reaching a boiling point. On Saturday, Wilson set a school record with 43 pass attempts, but the Illini were crushed by the Tigers 52-7. Still, the biggest threat to Illinois were the administrators of its own conference. The following week, news of a secret meeting in a Chicago hotel room leaked. It revealed that the chancellor of the University of Illinois was grilled for three hours by Big Ten officials about its challenging the conference's ruling on Wilson's ineligibility. Meanwhile, Wilson played his fourth game for Illinois and helped his team to a tie with the Air Force Academy. The day before that game, a lawyer for the Big Ten filed an appeal in Illinois Supreme Court to once again get Wilson banned from playing football. The matter was to be decided the following Tuesday. And once more, Illinois had to prepare for a game without the certainty that its star quarterback would be able to play. The conference would simply not back down, and was now asking the highest court in the state to keep Wilson from getting on the football field. On the day before the Illini's next game, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to uphold the lower court's earlier decision that kept Wilson eligible. The matter of Wilson's playing status for the 1980 season was now decided for good. From the initial ineligible ruling by the Big Ten, to the injunction that allowed him to play the season opener, to an overturn of that injunction, and then a reversal by an emergency appeals panel, to the confirmation of that ruling by the seven justices on the Illinois Supreme Court, Wilson's first few months in Champaign had more in common with a courtroom procedural than a debut football season. Now, finally, he could focus on football and becoming the big-time quarterback that Coach Mike White thought he could be. But as the legal threats against his success expired, other wolves were at the door. Badgers and Hawkeyes, too. Big Ten schools started to threaten cancellations of scheduled games with the Fighting Illini, citing what they saw as Illinois' lack of support for the conference's academic standards. The next day, Illinois finished its non-conference schedule with a seven-point home loss to Mississippi State. It rebounded with a victory over Iowa to move into first place in the Big Ten, a true nightmare scenario for the conference's power brokers. Though Wilson would start to hit his stride as a passer and set several records, the Illini suffered three straight losses to fall out of the Rose Bowl picture. Then, to add insult to injury, the Big Ten opened an official inquiry into Illinois and met to discuss the possibility of kicking the founding member out of its conference. Things weren't getting any easier on the football field for Mike White's team either. 
Next up for Illinois was 7th-ranked Ohio State in the horseshoe. The Fighting Illini had lost to the Buckeyes every year since 1972 by at least 30 points. The two schools had a long and one-sided rivalry that included playing each other every year since 1914. In 1925, student societies at each school decided that a live turtle named Illabuck would be awarded to the winning side. The reptile was chosen due to its expected long lifespan of nearly 50 years. Ironically, the turtle died just five months later, and a wooden replica has been awarded ever since. The 1980 installment of the rivalry started the same way so many others had, and Ohio State raced out to a 28-0 lead on its way to a three-touchdown advantage as the teams headed to halftime. Despite the lopsided score, the Buckeyes defensive backs coach, Nick Saban, was alarmed at how easily Wilson and the Illini offense was able to move the ball through the air. Coach White noted their success as well, and at halftime, he told his team that they would throw the ball every single snap of the second half if that's what it took to get back into the game. Nick Saban, nor the sold-out horseshoe, had any idea the show that they were about to see. In 1980, the University of Florida was competing in its 48th year of SEC football. Never had it won a conference championship, and it could often blame Georgia for the conspicuous emptiness of its trophy case. Five times the Gators and Bulldogs had met with at least a share of the SEC title on the line, and five times Georgia came away victorious. The annual meeting had grown into one of the most bitter and festive events on the football calendar. Since 1933, the teams and their fans had made the annual pilgrimage to the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida, to enjoy the rivalry. In the 1950s, a sports writer gave the gathering a nickname, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, and the game became known as much for its tailgating scene outside the stadium as for what went on between the sidelines. Georgia captain Frank Ross remembers what it was like to walk through the tunnel. The fan base is huge because they go down to, to Jacksonville. A lot of them leave three days early. They take off on a Wednesday and go to Amelia Island and different places, play golf for two or three days. And I mean, this is a fan, big fans game, if that makes sense. I mean, you could walk, i tell you a story. You walk out of the tunnel. I remember this the first time I ever uh, went to Florida, which is my freshman year. And I wasn't starting, uh, but I remember I was on special teams. And walking out of the tunnel, and as soon as you start, Walking out, you can smell the bourbon. It was that strong. I mean, it was just a very distinct smell. And everybody, all the fans are crazy. And, and if you're coming down the tunnel with Florida people, they're pouring stuff on you. So it was, it was, a, it was always a huge rivalry. But more importantly, it was, it was pivotal if you want to win the SEC. As the 1980 installment of the rivalry neared, local newspapers reported the uncertain future of the series. The aging Gator Bowl and unpopular price hikes by some local Jacksonville businesses threatened to move the series on campus. City officials were hard at work to secure funding for stadium improvements, including 10,000 additional seats that could keep the game on neutral ground. Jacksonville hadn't felt very neutral to Gators fans recently. The Dogs had claimed seven of the last nine cocktail party games, including a 33-10 trouncing in 1979, the debut year for Florida's head coach, Charlie Pell. Everything about Pell's first year in Gainesville had been something to forget. The team finished 0-10-1, the worst record in school history. Prior to the 1980 season, Pell and his staff were looking for a way to motivate his team while erasing the bad taste of the 1979 campaign. They launched an intense conditioning and weightlifting program, at that time still a somewhat novel idea in the world of college football. Florida's players could see the transformation in their bodies, and it soon translated to results on the field. Florida won its first three games in dominating fashion, scoring more points in just those 12 quarters than it had in the entire 1979 season. But a Week 4 trip to LSU proved costly, as the Gators were thumped 24-7 to 
and lost their starting quarterback for the year after he suffered a knee injury in the first quarter. Coach Pell handed the reins over to 18-year-old freshman Wayne Pease, but it would be the Florida defense that would carry the weight the rest of the way. Nicknamed the Chocolate Crunch because the five starting linemen and two linebackers were black, it was among the stingiest units in the country, allowing just 11 points per game. It was also one of the quirkiest. The nose guard took bubble baths the night before every game, while one tackle meditated for two hours after breakfast on game day, and another spent all week carrying around a picture of the player he would line up against. The wide-open run-and-shoot offense, installed by 28-year-old offensive coordinator Mike Shanahan, hadn't quite regained its early season form, but it was steadily improving behind the youngster Pease and All-American receiver Chris Collinsworth. On the eve of the matchup with the Bulldogs, the Gators were 6-1, ranked 20th, and in control of their own SEC destiny with just two conference games left to play. The week before, Florida had defeated Auburn 21-10, but allowed the Tigers running back James Brooks to gain 163 yards. Pell described Georgia's Herschel Walker as James Brooks, but 40 pounds heavier. But Georgia was more than just its freshman sensation running back. Quarterback Buck Ballou was second in the conference in passing efficiency, but was still yet to find a connection with one of his most talented options. The night before the game, as they lay in separate beds with the lights out in their Jacksonville Ramada Inn hotel room, senior wide receiver Lindsey Scott said to Ballou, I don't even remember what it's like to catch a touchdown pass. After a standout freshman season in 1978, Scott had plateaued as a sophomore, but seemed ready to peak in the spring of 1980. As final exams were underway, Scott got in a shoving match with an academic counselor and had his scholarship taken away. Then, in the summer, as he was driving his car back from campus without wearing a seatbelt, he fell asleep at the wheel and woke up in the hospital three days later. His car was totaled, and he was thrown from the vehicle, suffering a concussion and three dislocated bones in his foot. He was originally told that he would never play football again, but he made a miraculous recovery in time to start the season opener against Tennessee. He had caught just 11 passes all season as he worked himself back into shape, and prior to the Florida game, his receiver's coach thought he was finally back at full speed for the first time since the accident, and not a moment too soon. Scott would need every bit of that speed on this Saturday. It lives 50 feet beneath the streets. It's 36 feet long. It weighs over 2,000 pounds. And it's about to break out. Alligator. The Florida Gators were led onto the field by their new mascot, a 400-pound, 26-foot-long mechanical alligator donated to the university by producers of the new horror film, Alligator, set to make its world premiere the following weekend in Gainesville. Al Michaels and Frank Broyles provided commentary for the television broadcast that reached more than half the nation, including New York and Los Angeles. Kickoff was at 1235 under a perfect sky, as an overflowing press box and sellout crowd of 68,000 looked on with anxious anticipation for this top 20 SEC showdown. Georgia won the coin toss and opened the game with its offense. On just the fourth play, Herschel Walker provided the spark that would ignite the powder keg. First quarter at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville as Walker sweeps to the right, gets outside, the 35, look out, he's past midfield and he's got a blocker, cuts to the inside, Herschel Walker, there he goes again. So often we are guilty of hyping up people, making a big issue of freshman running backs 
But there you see it for yourself, and it took him just a minute 51 into the game to break that one. 72 yards for the touchdown. Things went from bad to worse for Florida when Wayne Pease had his pass intercepted by Mike Fisher on the Gators' second play. Georgia uncharacteristically gave the mistake right back with a fumble deep in Florida territory that the Gators turned into three points. The second quarter was a mirror image of the first. A quick Bulldogs touchdown and another Florida turnover meant the score was 14-3 with Georgia looking to land the early knockout blow. But once again, the chocolate crunch showed its ability to bend but not break with its back up against its own goal line. Third and four, Ballou throwing, intercepted at the seven-yard line. Back to the 15, to the 20, and out to the 30-yard line. So Florida gets the break they need as Ivory Curry, number 26, turns in a big play. The Georgia defense held, but another turnover, this time a Herschel Walker fumble, set up the Gators to take a bite out of the Bulldogs' lead. Florida's coaches had seen how Kentucky moved the ball on Georgia using four wide receivers and tried using the same tactic to spark their team. Pease drove the offense into scoring position, then connected with Chris Collinsworth for a one-handed touchdown catch that made it just a one-score game. An incredible fourth turnover of the half for Georgia meant the teams would head into the break with the Bulldogs leading only 14-10. But in the second half, an unlikely hero would emerge for the Gators and threaten to spoil Georgia's perfect season. Meanwhile, five hours north of Jacksonville, another perfect season was on the ropes. When Notre Dame's football team returned to South Bend after throttling Navy in Week 9, it was greeted by a mass of students chanting, We're number one. The lofty perch was not unfamiliar territory for the sport's most legendary program, but it did bring up sour memories for head coach Dan Devine. Devine was leading the Missouri program when his Tigers climbed to number one in November of 1960, only to be upset by unranked Kansas a week later. Now, the 55-year-old coach was hoping to learn from his past, as he tried to author a storybook ending in the final year of his coaching career. He had not been a popular man in South Bend, certainly not as popular as his predecessor, Era Parsegan. But then again, Devine was not always a popular man at his previous coaching stops. When he was coach of the Green Bay Packers, his family dog was shot and killed by a farmer who apologized for the accidental shooting. But when he got a new family dog, it was shot and killed too. Maybe Devine's thorny exterior had something to do with it. Legendary college football writer Herschel Nicholson famously told a story of a tacit exchange between Devine and a rival coach. When Pepper Rogers was at Kansas, he pleaded for mercy during a shellacking by Missouri and flashed the peace sign at Tiger coach Dan Devine on the other sideline. Rogers later reported that Devine, quote, shot one half of it back at me. In 1980, Devine was back in the good graces of Notre Dame fans. His team was undefeated and ranked number one with just four games to play. The Irish had won their last three games by a combined score of 83-6, and everybody was looking forward to the matchup against Alabama in two weeks. But before it could worry about Bear Bryant's boys, Notre Dame would have to dispatch lowly Georgia Tech. It was considered to be a fairly academic result, seeing that the Yellow Jackets were 1-7 and a three-touchdown underdog on their home field. Georgia Tech was in its first year under head coach Bill Curry. The former Tech player had taken over for Pepper Rogers, the same man that received the unfriendly hand gesture from Devine in that earlier story. But Curry was struggling mightily in his attempts to return the program to its former glory. Prior to hosting the Irish, Curry received a bit of good news when he learned that quarterback Mike Kelly might be able to play against the country's top team. The junior had missed the last three weeks with an injured shoulder, but he returned to practice and was throwing with authority. To help his players focus, Curry and his staff wore t-shirts that said, Bring Down the Thunder, 
and the team wore green practice jerseys all week. In 1976, when Curry was an assistant, a three-win Yellow Jackets squad pulled off a November upset over a one-loss Irish outfit, but few were expecting history to repeat itself this year. The game was set to kick off at 1.30, but was not going to be shown on television until Tuesday night at 8.30 on tape delay. Plenty of seats remained at Grand Field as the game kicked off, and even those most optimistic Tech fans that did attend had their faith rattled when just seven minutes into the first quarter, Mike Kelly re-injured his shoulder after a hard tackle and left the game. That forced lightly regarded freshman and former wide receiver Ken Wisenhunt into the fray. He lasted only until the third quarter, before he too was knocked out by the Irish defense. At that point, it was up to veteran Todd Peoples, but by then, the Jackets had a shocking 3-0 lead to protect. Georgia Tech wasn't able to do much against the Irish defense, but it did manage to drive for a 39-yard field goal midway through the second quarter. Notre Dame had a chance to answer just before halftime, but Harry Oliver badly hooked a 26-yard attempt. In the fourth quarter, Notre Dame was finally able to draw even, but fumbled on three of its other four possessions. With just more than 30 seconds left in the game and the score knotted at three points apiece, the Irish had a third and three at the Georgia Tech 42-yard line with all three of its timeouts. As it had all game, the Jackets' defense stepped up, throwing Notre Dame's quarterback Blair Keel for a 17-yard loss and ending the threat. Notre Dame entered the contest averaging nearly 300 yards rushing per game, but was held to just 138 on the afternoon despite having a 32-pound and 3-inch advantage per man along the offensive line. Tech was able to run out the rest of the clock, and Coach Bill Curry, who despised ties, made an exception just this once. The post-game press conference with Dan Devine felt like a funeral and the head coach had to be corrected by a reporter in the second row when he incorrectly referred to the result as a loss. It was little consolation. The debacle at Grant Field would be perceived as a failure and a missed opportunity, as Notre Dame's once clear path to the national title was now very uncertain. Once again, there was likely to be a new number one when the polls were announced next week. Ohio State, the season's first number one team, was looking to put the finishing touches on another blowout over their perennial punching bag, Illinois. But Dave Wilson, who had battled so hard just for the chance to play this season, was not about to go down without a fight. Ohio State entered the second half with a 28-7 lead and wasted little time cashing in on its first possession with another touchdown to make it 35-7. Then, all hell broke loose. The Illini had decided at halftime that they were going to go down swinging, and Coach Mike White took the brakes off Dave Wilson in the offense. A quick seven-play drive ended in a 38-yard touchdown pass to make it 35-13. An Ohio State fumble quickly turned into another Wilson touchdown throw, and it was 35-21, barely halfway through the third quarter. After the Buckeyes were forced to punt, it was Wilson again, this time with a seven-yard touchdown pass to Mike Martin, and the lead was cut to just seven points, with two and a half minutes left to go in the third quarter. When we came out the second half, and I remember just the preparation that Coach Harris would give us. I mean, he was very meticulous and detail-oriented, and there were times when I would go up and what's interesting about this is that I was taking a psychology class at the time, and then afterwards we had talked about being in what's called the flow. And so you're in this flow, and there's like nothing outside can even penetrate it. And you are so focused, and so everything just kind of slows down, and you just you see things so much clearly. And and the preparation that you give me, I mean, I see a DB over here and that's exactly the way it looked on film and the exact audible that we would go to to attack that and it just seemed like everything worked 
you know, at that point, it was like, okay, I see this here, I call this, throw it there, come back over this way, and and it's just and because of all those things, I mean, and then finally we got a couple defensive stops, and and it's uh, it kind of turned around there all of a sudden. Ohio State was reeling, and when the Illini defense held again, it seemed like there would be no stopping Dave Wilson, but he never got the football. Greg Dentino fumbled the Buckeye punt and Arch Schleister turned the short field into a touchdown to push the lead to 42-28. Now, in the fourth quarter, Wilson worked quickly, tossing yet another touchdown to bring his team to within seven once again. Ohio State answered with another touchdown of its own, and the Buckeyes' defensive coordinator was begging his coach to stop scoring so quickly. Trailing by 14, Wilson hit on a 62-yard bomb down the sidelines, but as his receiver was going in for a score, he was caught from behind and fumbled the ball back to Ohio State. The next Illini drive ended with an interception in the end zone. The desperation touchdown pass from Wilson with nine seconds left made the final score Ohio State 49, Illinois 42. When the dust had settled, Dave Wilson had completed 43 of 69 attempts for an all-time Division I-A record of 621 yards and six touchdowns. In addition, he set NCAA records for most attempts, most completions, and most passing yards in a half breaking his own record set earlier in the year against Purdue. He also set the Big Ten record for most touchdown passes and most total yards in a game. You know, Rick George actually was the first one to shake my hand, and just it was it was pretty cool just to know. I mean, I didn't I, – well, I don't think I realized at that time that I, you know, set those records and done the, the things that we did. Um, I remember getting a standing ovation from the crowd, walking off the field. Um, I remember meeting a – this older gentleman who said he'd been going to Ohio State games for, gosh, 50 years. He's pretty old, and he handed me his hat, you know, Ohio State colors. The Illini would lose its last game of the season to end the year on a five-game losing streak. Wilson finished 10th in the Heisman race. In April of 1981, with Wilson's future playing status still uncertain ahead of the NFL draft, the NCAA announced that if the Big Ten would waive its eligibility rules, Wilson could play a senior season in Champaign. The conference did not budge. Instead, it announced a three-year probation for all Illinois sports teams, excluding them from conference revenue and banning them from postseason play. Wilson and his lawyer sued the Big Ten and made a personal appeal to Commissioner Wayne Duke, but all attempts to restore Wilson's eligibility were unsuccessful. He turned pro in late June and was selected by New Orleans in a special supplemental draft. In August, after the university admitted wrongdoing in its handling of the Wilson case, the Big Ten significantly reduced the terms of its probation. In 1983, Mike White and Illinois won the Big Ten championship by defeating Ohio State and every other team in the conference on their way to the Rose Bowl, the school's first in 20 seasons. In Jacksonville, a conference title was on the line as Georgia and Florida came out of the locker rooms for the second half and one of the wildest finishes in college football history. Dr. Frank Jenkins was a Jacksonville dentist and Florida football booster. To help motivate the squad, he had t-shirts made for every game, orange with blue lettering. Coach Pell would give them to the players on Friday night to help them focus. They said things like, take up the slack and go on the attack, and team pride, play like a winner. The night before the Georgia game, the t-shirt said, I'm a 60-minute man. The message was clear. It was going to take a full 60 minutes of effort to knock off the undefeated and second-ranked Georgia Bulldogs. But as the third quarter wore on, it seemed like the Gators would fall far short of that goal. Georgia started the second half with two long drives, but settled for field goals on both of them for a 20-10 lead. 
Then, just when it looked like Georgia was about to run away with things for its ninth straight win, Florida came alive. Wayne Pease connected with Tyrone Young for 54 yards to set up a touchdown and two-point conversion. It was part of a career day for Young. A six-foot-four freshman had never before caught a pass, but on this day he would haul in 10 for 183 yards. Now, trailing by just two points, the Gators' offense was starting to resemble the same outfit that buzzsawed its opponents in the beginning of the season, and it was on the move again against the wilting Bulldogs. With less than seven minutes to go, Florida knocked through a 40-yard field goal for a one-point lead 21-20. It was the first time Georgia had trailed in a ball game since the season opener at Tennessee. The Dogs' offense went three and out and punted it back to Florida. As the clock melted away, Georgia's defense finally held around midfield and forced a Gators punt. The ball caromed out of bounds at the eight-yard line. It was now or never for Buck Ballou and the undefeated Bulldogs. On first down, he scrambled for a loss of one. On second down, his sideline pass fell incomplete. In the stands, while some fans headed for the exits, Ballou's mother started walking downstairs towards the locker room to console her son after the loss she felt sure was imminent. In the press box, Georgia's offensive coordinator was near apoplectic. He screamed into his headset that the team needed a play that would keep possession and called for left 76. It was a passing play that had the primary target drag across the middle of the field, and if executed perfectly, should result in a first down. The play was signaled into Ballou from the sidelines, who told the team in the huddle, I don't have a lot to say. You know what we have to do. Let's do it. Florida was confident. After the incompletion on second down, Ballou remembers Gators players were dancing the funky chicken on their sidelines and trash-talking the Georgia bench. The thing that really stands out in my mind, I think more than anything else, was after the, the first and second down play, uh, the clock in the Gator Bowl end zone seemed to be right on top of us, staring in our face. Uh, the Florida players, as I recall, uh, were taunting us verbally, and uh, one fellow was dancing. And, uh, I think really more than anything else, Florida relaxed. Florida felt like the game was over. As the Bulldog center squatted over the ball, Florida's nose guard looked him in the eye and said, we're going to the Sugar Bowl. Ballou took the snap with just over a minute remaining and retreated back towards his own goal line. Seeing his receivers covered, he fled to his right and picked up a key block from lineman Nat Hudson. Then he used his left hand to point to a dead spot in Florida's zone defense, and receiver Lindsey Scott followed the direction and slid over to give his quarterback a better target. Ballou zipped a line drive at Scott who leapt in the air to secure it around the 25-yard line. When he landed, he pivoted to his right, and the Florida defender with responsibility to contain that side of the field slipped leaving nothing but green grass behind him. The race was on, and Scott, with his newly healed foot, was not going to be caught on this day. As he streaked to the end zone, Georgia's sideline was bedlam. Players, including Captain Frank Ross, sprinted down the field to meet their teammate, while Coach Dooley windmilled his arm, willing Scott towards the goal line. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were sitting there, we were like, oh man, we've worked this hard, gotten this far, maybe, you know, we, but I think we never we never gave up hope, and as soon as Lindsey caught the ball and he started running, we all, if you look at the film, we all ran down, I mean, I was I was down in the end zone with him, and hell, I'm on defense, and I realized, God, I gotta go back in there and defense, I'm gonna be dead tired, uh, but we were all down at the end zone, I think they I think they ended up, they ended up throwing his flag on us, I believe, didn't they, for a celebration in the end zone, half, half the team was down there, and we just started running with him, uh, you didn't realize you were doing it, you just you know, you couldn't believe that was happening. Fans seeing the game on national television watched in disbelief as Al Michaels described Scott's run to history. The same man who, upon witnessing the USA hockey team upset the USSR just 10 months earlier in Lake Placid, famously asked, 
Do you believe in miracles? Now ask simply, But for generations of Bulldogs fans, that last play will always sound like this. Back third down on the eight. In trouble. Got a block behind him. Going to throw and a run. Complete to the 25. To the 30. Lindsey's got 35, 40. Lindsey's got 45, 50. 45, 40. Run, Lindsey. 25, 20, 50, 10, 5. Lindsey's got. Lindsey's got. Lindsey's got. I can't believe it. 92 yards, and Lindsey really got in a foot race. I broke my chair. I came right through a chair, a metal steel chair with about a five-inch cushion. I broke it. The booth came apart. The stadium, well, the stadium fell down. Now they do have to renovate this thing. They'll have to rebuild it now. <laughs> I, this, is, this is incredible. You know, this game has always been called the world's greatest cocktail party. Do you know what is going to happen here tonight? And up at St. Simon's and Jekyll Island and all those places where all those dog people have got these condominiums for four days. Man, is there going to be some property destroyed tonight. 26 to 21. Dogs on top. We were gone. I gave up. You did too. We were out of it and gone. Miracle. Florida got the ball back needing a touchdown with less than a minute to go, but a Jeff Hip interception sealed the victory for Georgia. Shortly after the score went final in Jacksonville, news came from Atlanta that Georgia Tech had tied Notre Dame. The Bulldogs could continue celebrating knowing they were the last team left in college football with a perfect record and would be voted the new number one. Florida would drop its final two games of the season before defeating Maryland in the Tangerine Bowl to finish 8-4. Charlie Pell coached four more years in Gainesville, before resigning after the third game of the 1984 season due to numerous NCAA infractions committed by him and his staff during his tenure at Florida. The Gators would rally to win their first ever SEC championship that same season, but would later be forced to vacate the title as part of the penalty stemming from the violations. Pell left Florida without ever beating Georgia. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. Georgia is college football's top dog, but would need a victory at Auburn to clinch the SEC championship. George Rogers continues his Heisman campaign, as his Gamecocks go down to the wire with Wake Forest, while the Pac-12 title is decided in Los Angeles. And Notre Dame invades Alabama, with both teams desperate to climb back in the title hunt. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, 
we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports gesture year, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.